And I think us moving to the connection of where materials comes from, understanding what it means to plant something and to wait is, is really the cultural shift that happens to help us embrace the idea that cutting down a tree, it can be bad, but it can be wonderful as a source of um, solving, you know, our real challenge of, of today and tomorrow. Michael Green and Natalie Telviak love wood. These Vancouver-based architects champion the idea that Earth can and should grow our buildings, or grow the materials we use to build them. They are the principals of Michael Green Architecture, or MGA, and have made it their mission to tackle world housing and climate change by harnessing the power of timber, which they call the most technologically advanced material we can build with to sequester carbon, to accelerate construction and reduce local disruption, and to create spaces that foster a more holistic well-being in our built environments. Founder Michael Green has been recognized for his advocacy of wood use in architecture, which has taken the form of three widely viewed TED Talks, the founding of education and research-focused nonprofits, timber online education, and design-build research, as well as open-source feasibility study titled The Case for Tall Wood Buildings, which outlines his mass timber construction model. Natalie Telviak, a longtime colleague and collaborator at MGMA, brings her unique perspective with a background in both architecture and engineering to the table. In 2018, Natalie became a principal alongside Michael. The two lead an ambitious team responsible for some of the largest modern timber buildings in the world including the Wood Innovation Design Center, a mixed-use research and commercial gathering place in Prince George, British Columbia, and T3, a seven-story LEED gold-certified mass timber office building in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In this episode, Michael and Natalie dive deep into the ethos behind their design and the material choices in some of their standout projects, like the Ronald McDonald House of British Columbia and Yukon, with Resite founder Martin Berry. They weigh the advantages and the limitations of mass timber construction and dissect the complex nuances faced when striving for true sustainability. And one could argue, what is sustainability without community, without affordability, and without connection? As pillars of MGA's practice, it is the combination of these factors that render their work both remarkable and mindful. Their projects are rooted in the local ecosystem, and designed for inhabitants to build connections to nature and to each other. Okay, good evening everyone and welcome Michael Green and Natalie Telewiak from Michael Green Architect uh, Architecture. We're so happy to have you guys from one of my favorite places in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, so guys, I, I haven't been to Vancouver in a long time. So let's just start really briefly. Like, tell me how it's going there. What are you up to? Um, what's new in the city uh, and, and what's inspiring lately? Um, yeah. Well, things are obviously strange in COVID, but, um, but Vancouver is doing well. Um, and, you know, the city's thriving. We're, we're, uh, we're an interesting city because we've been in a growth for a couple of decades now without really much of a dip. Um, with the economy or even COVID. So, you know, it's, it's thriving. There's a lot of people moving into the city. It's an incredibly beautiful city. As, as you mentioned, it's, you know, we're surrounded by the mountains and the ocean and, and great fortune of a lot of wilderness, a lot of great forest around us. Um, 
some wonderful big buildings going up, but you know, it's still not enough in wood. And that's something that obviously we're trying to change. And, and, um, but we are seeing some real movement there and we have some pretty exciting projects coming up here in Vancouver, as well as the things we're doing in the rest of the world right now. Yeah, one of the other really exciting uh, kind of developments has been how uh, the kind of uh, sustainable transportation has really evolved to kind of be knit throughout the city. So we've had the addition of lots of different bike lanes, knitting together public spaces and, you know, really seeing particularly through the summer, but how that's um, kind of even being accelerated um, through how we use our exterior space uh, during COVID and during the pandemic. Uh, and so it's one of the things, like Michael said, we're, we're so um, kind of lucky to be right knit within our natural environment and how that's kind of becoming infused within our public spaces and in our, in our kind of urban areas. Uh, it's just really exciting and kind of provoking a bunch of uh, kind of different design oriented conversations. Mm -hmm. That's great. You know, I'm always inspired whenever I visit Vancouver and every time I go, I think like, you know, why don't I live here? You know, that's <laughs> super close to the, to the ocean. Um, got the bay in the city it's like a you know one hour drive to some of the most beautiful parts of the canadian rockies and uh i guess like this has got to inspire your work does it yeah you know it's an interesting thing with our team and with natalie and i we we're all very outdoor oriented people so i think people a lot of people choose to live in vancouver because they love the outdoors i think our firm is 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 no different but you know, everybody's out on the weekends i just came back from the canadian rockies this weekend and doing some climbing with my son and people are skiing people are um on the ocean people are running and, and like nat said the public space that we have that connects us with the wilderness makes makes us a pretty special city but it's interesting is we also feel like we have so much more to improve that connection and and um it's a city that's uh, maturing and it, it, it you know i think where we are strong in our natural connection we still have a lot of room to grow in our cultural connection and our and our social connections so those are things that we're also really focused on as a practice i think that's a good way to start and and your work is known a lot of people know you through uh the, the work you've done on timber and sustainability and and of course the ted talks you've done have been really popular and it's been super inspiring for us. Um, but before we get there, I kind of want to step back. And I think it's a good segue that we just mentioned how your physical place is tied to your well-being and also tied to your practice. And so I kind of want to jump maybe like from a philosophical level um, and start with well-being and wellness. Um, and then I think we'll kind of build into the story of how sustainability and, and timber plays into that because materiality is such a big part of how we can make people feel and connect with architecture. Um, but I really like some of the things you said when you talked about the Ronald McDonald house in Vancouver. Um, first of all, with Alpenglow and the story uh, that you created that, that is inspired by, and I think inspires some of the design, um, but also about this idea of, well, you talk, talk about concentric ring, rings in the design. I would kind of say it's it's almost like a nesting of scales and how this kind of nesting or these rings in architecture can help us deal with um, the psychological aspects of, of the architecture you're creating. I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, and how can, how does this building develop? How did you come up with the ideas of, of, of the building and these different scales and, and the rings? Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the, of opportunities with that project was to really think about 
the experience at a personal level. And I think recognizing that uh, many of the families that are will be staying and stay at these at the house are going through um, just a tremendously difficult um, time in their lives. And, um, and so thinking about what does um, kind of wellness support um, and uh, what is, how can architecture um, kind of impact that? So really we thought about starting at the family, starting at the child even, and thinking about around that family and around that child, what, what would support look like on a, on a kind of a, a social level? So how many, how could we create spaces that could kind of really um, encircle that, that kind of uh, individual to provide that, that support, but also recognizing that we need to provide a kind of real diversity of, of spaces and, um, and recognizing that there's space for quiet, space for togetherness, and really um, ultimately here, the kind of the, uh, the concept expanding to think about the province. So people that are coming, uh, coming to the house really are often um, kind of undergoing treatment for cancer at the children's hospital, which is right next to the site. And so thinking of our site, not just as that immediate property, but really as at the province uh, at a kind of larger scale. So linking then to the places, the forests, the environments of those different um, kind of places within the province and thinking about what does um, home feel like in the context of architecture and connecting to those, we looked at um, those concentric rings of support also being linked to different environmental factors. So thinking about how do we link to places uh, like the, our coast coastlines and to our treetops and through the art and the spatial kind of um, organization of those linking to those natural environments. So as much as looking at the, the wellness and kind of uh, kind of calming properties of natural materials, which have been proven kind of time and time again through different studies um, that we do, our stress levels are lower, our heart rates go down when we're near natural materials, also linking to those stories. So thinking about how to create that feeling of home within uh, the kind of larger uh, design concept. You know, Rob McDonald House probably for um, for both of us is, is the, one of the most special projects that we've ever done and also one of the most spe special projects you could ever do. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a privilege to work and serve families that are going through this really terrible time with the child with cancer. And, and so, you know, the, the project um, for us, the stories that Matt's talking about um, were, were really, really important to kind of connect through the process of the design and then the end product um, to connect people to the meaning and impact that we can have through the project. And, um, you know, there were literally moments in that project where, the, you know, the contractors, you know, were tearing up over the impact that they were having just by participating. We felt the same way. And I think when you have a, um, an opportunity for design to have that kind of impact, it's a privilege, but it requires a deep investment in, in self. And, and, and we were, um, yeah, we're really privileged to get to do it. And can you talk a little bit about Alpenglow? I mentioned it and, and I, I heard part of the story that you recited and I, I saw the illustrations, which by the way, um, everyone on my team wants uh, illustrations for their home. So <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, but tell, tell me a little bit about this because it's not often that architects write stories. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I guess I want to say two things about it. I mean, so from for us as a practice, we, we really are very much a team environment. And so there's sometimes a tendency for, for I think, externally to architecture, the sense that, um, you know, that there's this sort of preliminary sketch that becomes the building. But of course, that's not how it works. There's all this sort of deep thought that goes into it. About halfway through the design process, working with Natalie and 
um, and and Justin, um, who who kind of Justin Bennett, who helped lead the project with Natalie. Um, it, the ideas were sort of gelling to a point where the story of Alpenglow, which is just sort of popped into my head. I, I've written now 13 children's books and illustrated that, you know, most of which are not published, but um, they each have a kind of deep story behind them that um, honestly was pretty personal. Um, but in this case, Alpenglow became the story, a sort of metaphor, metaphorical story about the way the design was evolving as a, you know, that came from the team, came from us as a group. Um, and and the, the story is, is one about a, a bird that, or a little seed that floats up into the mountains and, and a bird that, um, that watches that little seed start to grow on the mountaintop, but then start to struggle in terrible winds and, and um, start to, to, you know, really be under a lot of distress. And the bird sort of realizes that if, if she plants seeds around in a circle around that little flower, a new ring of flowers will grow up and start to brace her that little challenged flower from from the winds and and um, over time the bird plants ring after ring after ring of flowers around that little that little bird uh, that little flower that we call alpenglow and eventually the hillside becomes a meadow that supports and nurtures that little flower alpenglow such that she thrives and survives and that story, you know, for us was the metaphor of what it means for a child to enter Ron McDonald House sick with cancer, be surrounded by her family, and then that family be surrounded by other families, and that, you know, surrounded by a, a whole house, the support of Ron McDonald House, surrounded by the children's hospital, surrounded by, you know, really the city and the province and 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 the territory of the Yukon that all uh, where the kids all come from. So, you know, it was this idea that. Um, you know, that the design, the functional design also had that sort of layering of stories and rings. And so sometimes those inspirations come in different places. But for me at that moment in the process, the, the story of Alpen Glow really kind of gelled the idea of where the design was at. But I always hesitate because, it, you know, I don't like that sometimes that story can overshadow the reality that this this is an idea built of a team i i just composed a book that that worked for what the team was doing at that time yeah that's 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 clear the design uh a design i think that's that's so thoughtful can't come from one individual mind it's clear that this is a team effort and um natalie i feel like i maybe cut you off do you have something to add to that oh uh no, I think that one of the, um, you know, one of the real um, values of the story is how it's been knit throughout the house. And there's kind of little curious moments of the different characters and um, um, kind of the storyline of the, 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 the flowers and the birds throughout this, this house, which I think, um, you know, it adds to those, the layers of discovery that are so important when people are staying there for such a long time. Um, one of the kind of, uh, the discussions we had quite a bit early on is kind of what does this architecture, how does it speak to the feeling of, of home? How can it connect to that scale um, while also housing 73 families? And um, part of that is these kind of broken down into houses, certainly the kind of the courtyards and connection to safe, um, kind of wonderful outside spaces. But the other is these kind of network of stories that link to that experience over time. And I think that's been something just talking with families uh, that are that are kind of experiencing that um, that just adds to the, the, the kind of overall sense of wellness and I think connection to shared experience when when they're at the house. Mm -hmm. One of the one of the neat things for us was or for, and for me personally actually was that Alpenglow 
we we it, the words of it of the story that I wrote are written on the front entrance when you come in and and when they started bringing volunteers into the building they realized it was a great way to introduce what it means to be part of the house um, what it means to be part of supporting and nurturing families and children and so you know the the it became sort of the guide for new volunteers to start with and I think you know the history of design um, and the tradition of design was that we we didn't see architecture with these sort of boundaries that we had to stay within um, you know once upon a time we designed everything as you know from the furniture to the clothes to the to the building structures and there's something about um, a project like Ronald McDonald House that sort of should be part of every aspect um, and including literally the, the writing of the the guide for volunteers that would work there. Um, that's the best of the best for us when we can have that level of contribution. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And tell me a little bit, I think Natalie, you mentioned it a little bit before, but the the wood in this building, um, how does the wood structure provide the environment for healing? Is it, is it uh, for those listeners out there that maybe aren't familiar with the material and architecture, like how deeply can this affect the physical and mental well-being of, uh, of the users or the people inside? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the kind of really um, impactful uses of wood in this building is that it's really at the places of gatherings. When you uh, look at the diagram of the building, we've got four houses kind of in a quadrant linked by uh, two central dining rooms. And at the very kind of heart of the building, there's one large family room. And, and those spaces um, are, uh, they have uh, CLT, so cross-laminated timber, um, local Douglas fir uh, kind of uh, roof structures. Therefore, you can see them within the dining room, within the living rooms. And they also link together play spaces outside, um, courtyards for kind of sitting, gathering. Um, and, um, and that connection to the natural material, it, it really goes, it's almost something we, we, you can't even quite put your finger on it, but each piece of wood, wood is unique. Each piece has kind of a story, just like each of us, where it's come from in the province, where it's had the kind of journey it's taken. And um, and I think that part of that connection to the material is just that it has that that kind of unique story and, and kind of um, and connection to place. And then the other is just that the kind of the, uh, physical warmth. Um, I think more and more when we see the impact of experience within wood buildings, it's really creating that connection and love of being within a space. Um, that um, you know, we we really see mostly with natural materials. It's it's the, a bigger understanding of our world and how we sit, sit within it, and and kind of how our, our our spaces and some of those natural, some of those are kind of constructed, kind of shape that. Um, and so I think within the building, the, those kind of central spaces, connection to that warmth of material is one really strong aspect of the timber. And the other is actually more hidden and quiet, and and that's that the. The structure of the main houses, so the four quadrants are actually, the vertical walls are CLT. And part of this was really looking at a solution that would endure for um, kind of, you know, hundreds of years. Um, this house is really thought of as this kind of, um, kind of real anchor and kind of legacy space, space where um, the exterior facade is brick. It sits on these kind of tall uh, timber walls and creates this, um, you know, this building that will last, uh, last for centuries. And uh, that was a really um, important part of how we could create and really honor um, working with the, with the Ron McDonald House. And you spoke, like moving to, more towards the technical aspects of wood, you spoke about how the earth grows our food and we need to move to an ethic where earth grows our homes. And I don't know, we, we think that's quite 
beautifully put. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means in practice for you guys? Yeah, so, you know, we're a firm that's really um, focused, you know, I think we're associated with wood. We, we today build everything we design is in wood structure, but we're really committed to the idea broader than wood, of the idea that everything should be ultimately organic, that we should move to a, you know, a truly sustainable world where we can grow um, what we build with. Um, obviously today we use aluminum, which is really hard on the environment, huge energy user. Um, we use concrete, we use steel. These materials have big impact on the planet and they're permanent impacts on the planet. When you grow something, it, you know, it replenishes if we manage it well. And so wherever we can choose to use something that's been grown by the power of the sun and, you know, leveraging the power of, photo, of photosynthesis, we want to do that. And so that's not just wood, that's other materials as well. Um, the, the, the interesting part of the story is that, you know, we are, I think, obviously going through massive political, cultural shifts and, and the conversation of climate change is, is challenging all of our conceptions of the future. And, and for, you know, encouraging us to change in really positive ways to make it better, but also, you know, really challenging ways to change industries and the construction industry needs to change in dramatic, dramatic ways in a very short period of time. And that's a responsibility we feel is on the shoulders of architects and others in our industry to, um, to vocalize, to share ideas, to make things happen quickly, um, to get a little political, to get a little bit um, out of our, our bubble and, and share with the world why this matters so much. And that's become a big part of us as a firm of how we, uh, we want to communicate uh, that we want to make an impact, not just one building at a time for our clients, but um, an entire industry at a time if we can contribute towards that. The, the growing your home thing, the concept of that um, does require a bit of a cultural shift in lots of places. You know, I think when we, I spent the weekend driving from Vancouver over to, to the Canadian Rockies, which is actually, you go over many mountain ranges and it's quite a distance, it's about eight hours. And, and uh, you see a lot of cut down trees, a lot of clear cuts, and it can be heartbreaking to see a forest that's been cut, even for me who believes that using wood is a really positive thing. Um, but then I reflect on the fact that we all drive by farm fields and we, we don't think twice about it. And yet a farm field is effectively a clear cut that never got replanted. And I think us moving to the connection of where materials comes from, understanding what it means to plant something and to wait um, is, is really the cultural shift that happens to help us embrace the idea that cutting down a tree, it can be bad but it can be wonderful as a source of um, solving, you know, our real challenge of, of today and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I think too, when we look at um, the kind of cycle of harvest, when we have, when we're thinking food production, you know, it, it's just much easier and we're much more familiar with that in terms of um, how quickly it's replenished. What's the long-term plan? How is, is that kind of going to sustain over time? And uh, like Michael said, um, when we're thinking about growing our, our building materials, it's, it's kind of wrapping our heads around things, years that we can't even imagine just yet as a, as a um, as a society and uh you know but we're getting we're getting there and i think part of that shift too is uh really uh like we like like in our food like in our clothing like in our furniture um there's this shifting kind of desire and perspective to understand who who made it where did it come from how how close is it to home how is it impacting my local economy um and that's very much now the kind of opportunity within the 
within the construction and architecture industry um, is that shift of perception and, and really wanting and asking for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and, uh, and I'll, I'll push back a little bit on this concept of sustainability in, in timber um, because I want you to answer, I want you to answer it in, in, in all the ways you know how, I think. But we get to the benefits of carbon sequestration. It's super clear, I think, and, and I love timber construction for that. Um, but what about life cycle and also supply chain? Um, you know, I was just reading recently about IKEA and and the timber practices that some of their suppliers have engaged in, particularly in Romania. They've gotten in some pretty big trouble for deforesting parts of virgin forest in Romania and national parks. And and there's like uh, you know there's some accountability for IKEA that you know they need to be a little bit better about tracing where their product is from. Um, but can you? You know, can you get to some of this? Like, how, how do we get, if we're going to be using timber as a truly sustainable building material around the world, how do we deal with the issues of deforestation and transportation? Um, yeah, incredibly important conversation and, and pretty complex one because um, there, there are typically in forest practices, well-managed developed country forest practices, they are... Um, the replanting cycle and the forest management cycle is increasingly sophisticated and increasingly responsible and is creating a, uh, you know, a, a balanced forest in Europe is actually um, growing faster than it's being cut down, but there's more wood being cut down today than, than ever. Um, and so there is a sustainable model of forestry. There's also a terrible model of forestry where in parts of the world, obviously, um, in South America and Africa, we mostly think about in Indonesia as well, where there's deforestation that's compounding the problems of, of climate change because we need the forest also to be our carbon sequestration um, as part of our climate program. Um, but in those countries, most of the reason trees are being cut down is not for buildings. It's being they're being cut down to grow uh, crops or 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 worse actually for grazing land in South America. Um, there's no, you know, that's what's replacing the forest. It's not being harvested for buildings. When we do create a, a wood industry that's robust all around the planet, and especially areas where there's risk of deforestation um, or currently deforestation, what we do is we actually build an industry that encourages reforestation. Um, so the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization that's responsible for, for forestry um, has tried to encourage countries like Brazil, um, you know, and, and countries throughout Africa that typically cut down wood for burning for fuel um, to, to plant for, to a forest, which means to plant forest where trees have been cut previously often in agricultural land. Um, and they can't, they can't find a method to encourage them to do that. But the, the answer to that problem is actually to build more in wood. When you cut down a tree and replanted and can make money because there's a sustainable industry using the wood to build with it it encourages reforestation which actually in many parts of the world like brazil would mean you could make more money planting trees than cutting them down to bring in livestock that's the kind of formula that's really important to think about in parts of the world where deforestation is a massive problem but in the developed world we we do have sustainable forest models. We definitely need to get better. And the, the example that you cited with IKEA is a really good one. Understanding the source of your wood is incredibly important. And in some countries, and Romania is a good example, Russia would be another example, 
it's not just a problem that the forest, the wood is not coming from a sustainably managed forest. It's also a problem that the labor used often, uh, certainly it's the case in Russia, comes from forced labor um, in the forestry sector. And so your sourcing choices as an architect for wood, and it's true for every other product we choose from, needs to understand the real history and roots of where that material came from, what, what would the impact on the environment, what's the impact on, on people, um, because this issue of forced labor is something we also don't track currently, and, and it's an important issue to be thinking about. This, this subject matter is super big and complicated. It's hard to kind of summarize in a short amount of time. But um, you know, we believe we have to do a lot more because we believe in using wood. We have to do a lot more to, to understand. We spend a lot of energy understanding forestry models around the world. Um, and we spend a lot of time making sure we source really, really responsibly. That's the most important thing all of us can do is really understand the chain of custody and wherever possible use the, you know, the certificate forest certification systems like a, like Forest Stewardship Council, FSC, that do really help us understand the chain of custody involved. Now, interestingly, IKEA does use FSC wood and has a very strong FSC program. So I'm, I didn't, you know, I, I have not heard the story of Romania for them, but it shows if that's the case that there are, you know, still significant weaknesses in the system. Um, but that's also not unique to wood. That's something that every other industry in construction is also facing and needs to be addressing. I think one uh, kind of just to build on that, you know, we have these conversations internally quite a bit and, you know, our main focus, even though we're really known as kind of timber architects, our main focus is actually um, kind of low carbon um, construction and also the kind of social impacts. And right now, um, you know, we do quite a bit of research and look at our options when we're kind of deciding what to build, how to build, and certainly the materials um, materials to use. And, you know, over the past decade, um, when we're, we're kind of evaluating those choices, um, timber and mass timber has been uh, the clear, uh, clearly more, more sustainable option. Like Michael said, it's part of um, kind of considering it as the entire cycle. And one of the benefits of wood is that it already exists. And when we're thinking about life, life cycle and the amount of energy needed to kind of fabricate product add value, um, you're already kind of well along um, that chain of, of kind of how much energy has already been you know, created by the sun, the earth um, to build that material, but it doesn't stop there, right? This is a growing industry and there's opportunities along the way to continue to kind of enhance and reduce energy consumption. And you know, as a as a practice, we just continue to ask that question: How can we influence that bigger picture of, in terms of how our materials are created? How are those products? But also, are there alternatives? You know, as as we continue to research low carbon um, materials over time, um, you know, the, there's going to be more and more um, kind of opportunity to shape how do we use those materials? How do we really value when we do kind of use trees and and uh, and kind of timber? And um, what are the alternatives? And um, right now, that, that kind of answer just keeps coming back to timber. Um, but you know, we'll continue to investigate and evolve our practice with that. Yeah, I think we appreciate uh, all of us uh, as listeners, and also me as a former landscape architect. That this, you know, like any um, like any material uh, sourcing question or any issue uh, in sustainability, it's pretty complex to, to answer. So I appreciate you taking the time to answer this one because I, I believe we could do um, like another 10 one-hour podcast on, on that issue right there. And I've got a bunch of other questions about that, but I think um, I think one of the ones that maybe is more fun is um, 
like just just today I, I i think i answered three times like oh uh, cool wood construction well i guess i can't smoke a cigarette near the building or um you know doesn't it burn down if you build a wood tower so you know i'm sure you want a sort of play button on your chest where if someone asks you that question you just sort of have like a, like a canned response uh how do you <laughs> what's your answer on this do you mean about wood burning or about people yeah, no, building a tower <laughs> I'm happy to talk about people not smoking too. If that's who that's helpful. Um, so mine as well. So um, no, more about like uh, the tower burning down. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but wood burns. Lots of materials burn. It's true. And 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 the, the issue is, um, um, you know, thick, large members of wood actually are very hard to catch fire. And if they do catch fire, they actually burn in a very predictable and, and manageable way that we can actually engineer and design around. That's the that's the kind of shortest version of that. But I often use the, you know, the best way for the audience to connect to the idea. It's, it's sort of, I describe it as if you were to build a, a fire in the fireplace or a campfire, and I handed you a big log and a lighter and said, go light a fire, and those are the only two things you had, you probably know well enough that that lighter can't get the big log on fire and you won't get a fire going. And instead you need to start with, you know, maybe some paper or some, or some pine needles and then work your way up to some kindling and then slightly bigger wood and eventually put that big piece of wood on the fire. The types of buildings we're talking about effectively are like that big log. The, the member sizes, the, the physical beams and, and slabs of wood that we're talking about are, are so massive that they, um, you know, they're very, very challenging to catch fire. And as I say, they, they do burn predictably. And so we can engineer these buildings um, to, to perform to the same level of building code performance as steel and concrete buildings um, by exposing the wood and just using the scale of the wood itself as a fire resistance member. And we can do it safely. Um, obviously, we would never promote concepts that we didn't believe in and didn't feel were safe, um, fundamentally safe. And you know, the history of this is is pretty long. This isn't as much as the mass timber, what we call the mass timber industry, is a pretty young industry of the last twenty years. Um, the the timber, the heavy timber industry, is you know is thousands of years old, and we have examples of thousand year old buildings that still stand today in timber that. Um, have even themselves gone through fires and survived and been repaired, but also, um, you know, have, show, have demonstrated this kind of resilience, this natural resilience that large, heavy timber buildings have to fire. And luckily, building codes have evolved to, to respect and understand that. And that's why you're seeing this resurgence, of, especially with mass timber, which is this engineered version of wood that uses smaller trees to make big members. Um, that's why you're seeing this resurgence of that in, in our conversation, not just because it helps us address climate, but also because these buildings do help us reduce stress in our environment and improve wellness and do help us um, build very safe, very large buildings in an urban context that we need to do affordably, effectively to solve the human need. And how adaptable is the material as a building element? So are, can a mass timber element be reused? Uh, it, does it have a cradle to cradle um, construction methodology behind it? Tell us about that. Absolutely. Um, I think we can talk, think about that in two scales. Um, you know, wood lends itself 
uh, really well to a kind of deconstructible approach. Um, and that in that sense, because these are elements, the kind of timber, mass timber columns and, and beams, these are they can be prefabricated elements that kind of click together like Lego. And so you can imagine the reverse of that um, in terms of kind of unbolting, deconstructing. The one, uh, one of the benefits with that approach is just the weight of timber is a lot less than other uh, kind of building materials. So thinking about how it's detailed, how it goes together, and then you know how simple really those elements can be so that they can have another life, right? The more and more that we can think of things kind of systematically um, and, you know, appreciating that we really are going to change the way we use buildings and continue to like we have over the <laughs> over the course of history, um, how we're going to use them. And so and in one sense, for sure, we can build them to be deconstructed. One of the kind of our big beliefs, though, is how we can think about building our buildings so simple and kind of thoughtful that they can have so many different lives. You know, the most um, kind of sustainable approach is for that building to endure uh, for, for, you know, for centuries. And we can, can see that, you know, with older uh, industrial warehouse, actually timber buildings, you know, our old office was in a over 100 year old um, uh, timber building. And because of the kind of the nature and simplicity of those designs, you know, inherent timelessness, both of the facade, but really the layout, they've had lots of different lives through, you know, industrial, through the kind of workspaces, residential, and um, have really proven that um, in a way that, you know, we're, we do that in different ways now, but I think the opportunity for both architecture and uh, kind of at a building scale, how is it reusable, and that a, kind of an individual element, how can this be thought of as like, like Lego? Yeah, there's a, I'll just kind of add quickly that there's a kind of romantic quality of this as well. And I, I reflect, you know, around North America and through Europe and really around the world, there are these beautiful barn structures. And, you know, many of those have just been left to fall apart over time and collapse and they're lovely on the landscape, but many are, are actually being salvaged for their wood because that wood has this inherent beauty that we all love, often don't understand why we love so much, but we love. And so, you know, wood members are being picked up and turned into other things. The, the mass timber that we work with in these buildings will have that same um, legacy. It, it, you know, not only in the way it's engineered and put together such that it can be taken apart, not only that it has this long life that Matt talked about, but also that if it was to be taken apart, the value remains and the, the uh, you know, I expect the same thing will happen just like a barn that people will salvage these members and rebuild and build new things because the wood is far too beautiful mm -hmm. to, to abandon. And all the while, those pieces then containing carbon, right? That's so, so what's so fascinating about that kind of potential of the different forms of life of these materials is throughout that whole process. These are kind of carbon storage banks, right? Um, as a, as we kind of use them in different ways. Yeah, yeah and, and I love this reusability aspect. And, uh, you know, of course, like a lot of people know about reclaimed timber and, and it's incredibly expensive. Um, uh, products to use and and which means it's valuable right it's got uh, a huge lifespan after its original life uh, or use as a building material so I, I really love that aspect um, of the material what about cost um, this one is is I think a little bit tougher uh, to crack again so how do you deal with that like there's a tower being built or, or proposed now uh, I think it's actually under construction in Japan I know a place that you've done some some research as well and it's estimated at construction cost of over two times a conventional building. Like, how do you justify this to your client? Uh, is it always the case? Um, no, it's just not the case. I mean, I, I, you know, I, 
I, we can't speak to the buildings others are doing, but you know, one of the things we believe in is that um, part of sustainability is affordability, and that as we've invested a lot of time into the research and development of ideas, as much of our effort has gone into how to do this sustainably as how to do it affordably, and um, that's a, a core value for us as a practice, and and we know that changing global systems towards something more um, climate sensitive like this requires it to be cost competitive. And in fact, we currently in Vancouver believe that we can do these buildings for less money than concrete. Not a lot, not a lot less money than concrete, but our concrete industry right now is, is, uh, is pretty busy and pretty competitive and concrete's getting expensive where we live in Vancouver. And so here we believe we can start to build these buildings for, for a little bit less than a concrete building. In different cities and different places around the world, that story will be different. It depends on, you know, the cost of labor, the access to steel or concrete versus wood. There's a bunch of variables, but there's no question that the future of this way of construction will be um, completely competitive cost-wise with concrete and steel, and that'll come from maturity in the industry, competition in the industry, understanding, a sharing of knowledge globally. Um, and, and, you know, that is in, in, in our mind an inevitability um, all around the world. I think one of the cost savings that, that I would argue is really beneficial is, is the, um, the transport. Uh, you can reduce the kind of number of trips to a construction site dramatically because of flat pack uh, panel construction um, built out of timber. And the, the, the prefabrication, I think, also... Uh, kind of pushes or condenses the construction schedule. Is that the correct understanding? Absolutely. Um, you know, we are kind of heavily invested in um, kind of offsite construction in general. And, you know, definitely as we look at what we can do offsite, so prefabricating um, wall elements, floor elements, um, with that controlling, having that in a controlled environment, being able to um, take advantage of um, the economies of scale in terms of really thinking about affordability in a, in a real way um and um and and then uh, it, just like you said there's that kind of ability then of um kind of showing up to site and having a lot of that work already done so uh, definitely saving time and also um creating kind of a quieter kind of more of a, like a good neighbor um we like to talk about it in, in the sense of you know it can be a very pleasant experience and you know certainly any kind of construction site is exciting but the ability for that to be also if you're living right next door you get not only get to see the kind of wonder of it going up but it's also not disturbing kind of the the kind of immediate neighborhood both in terms of time and also in terms of kind of sound impacts yeah time is the big one right so when we talk about affordability um time and predictability of schedule is something that the industry really, really struggles with. And these buildings can be built far faster than a steel or concrete building, especially concrete. And um, that, you know, time is money. And so that is part of the formula that we're always working with. Um, and, and as that said, impact, right? So there, the, when we talk about cost of buildings, there's a whole number of costs that never um, get picked up. Um, one of them is carbon. We don't tend to pay the price of carbon impact, which we should. The other is, um, as Nat said, is noise and disruption. Streets being shut down for concrete trucks has a huge cost to the community or to a business down the block that has to put up with that traffic. There's no actual cost attached to the cost of construction for those kind of 
social impacts and economic impacts to others. Um, fast buildings, wood buildings allow us to start really reducing those uncaptured costs that as a society, we need to actually start to own a bit more responsibly. Um, if the mental health of the neighbor, because they're having to hear, you know, loud steel construction for nine months is being impacted, where's the, where's the cost of that being captured by society or by the building itself? These wood buildings give us a chance to really start thinking about those issues and making them better. So in that sense, like it sounds like timber construction uh, at scale has a lot of benefits to add to the affordable housing crisis and the need for for building housing in lots of our cities, including European cities, which struggle with affordable housing and, and um, availability of housing in downtowns. Uh, so you see this very much as a downtown sort of like cent center city building material, and you think it will help us solve the affordable uh, housing crisis? Um Yes, but not alone. I think, you know, the most in our mind, and this is why we invest a lot of time and why we're partnered with Katerra here in, in North America, um, our, in our mind, offsite construction is the critical part of affordability. Um, we're, we, we currently build the way we did 100 years ago. There's largely, you know, very modest changes in the character of construction globally compared to 100 years ago. The evolution to offsite construction really allows us to engineer design differently, engineer away waste in the design as all other manufacturing happens. Um, and, um, you know, by doing that, we're engineering away costs and reducing costs. What's interesting when we look at offsite construction, especially in urban contexts um, where you need robust materials to deal to build large buildings, we really have come to believe that this is the other place that mass timber becomes the, the, the most exceptional material. And that's because um, steel and concrete are very heavy materials to build off-site, to lift panels onto trucks and drive them to site and lift them into, into place. It's very expensive um, with heavy, heavy materials like those. Light wood frame or light steel frame construction is a little too flimsy for a lot of big buildings. It's not, you know, you can't build a very large building with those. And also when you're transporting them to site from an off-site location, they can be so flimsy that they don't, you can't fully finish them with plumbing and finishes and so forth. Mass timber sits right in the middle. It's robust enough to be moved really well to site and be, you know, a completely finished panel, but it's also light enough that you can transport it to site and lift it into place. So as we think about reducing costs, as we think about moving towards offsite construction, mass timber just sort of resides in the perfect sweet spot of where we think, um, you know, we can tackle exactly what you talked about. It's increasing um, issues of density in, in inner cities, but also um, doing so in a much more cost-effective way. And is mass timber, you think, is it kind of best suited for high-rise commercial structures? I know you, you talk about that a lot, and, and I know it's, it's, it's one of the focus points of your practice, but can we use mass timber in smaller residential projects or cultural projects? Absolutely. I think, um, like Michael mentioned earlier, um, you know, one of the, th there's opportunity across the typologies and, you know, right now the sweet spot in North America, when we're talking about um, kind of cost comparison and affordability is in the kind of higher range. So kind of 10 stories plus. Um, and that is because it's being kind of compared from a cost perspective to other materials like concrete and steel. 
Um, when we look at other typologies, though, certainly kind of lower rise um, and even kind of more remote um, kind of locations, the ability to think about how the material is transported, how we take advantage of that kind of lightness, but also strength um, is, uh, you know, it exists um, within um, kind of smaller buildings as well. And in some ways offers a really rich opportunity to take advantage of the experiential qualities. So I think one of the items we haven't touched on yet is the beauty of not having to add a lot of finishes. And so when we think of that um, kind of the natural material, the, the structure itself being the interior experience, you know, that's true amongst all kind of different building scales. And, and we've explored this in kind of smaller townhouses, like as you can see in Ronald McDonald House, that's actually a much smaller kind of building scale up to four stories and, you know, um, is successful for, for kind of a wide variety of reasons of, of the kind of benefits of timber. Um, and so, you know, the answer really relates to where are, where are you in the world? Where are we in the world? What are the kind of alternative building materials? And, um, and how can we think about these opportunities of offsite construction within that um, kind of uh, building type um, to kind of provide the most kind of, um, kind of uh, responsive and sensitive solution? And, and, you know, that can exist in mass timber at, at kind of a range of building scales. You know, our practice, I think we are, you know, we often are talking about tall wood. We, we really largely leverage tall wood as a way to push the engineering conversation to create a kind of global access, acceptance and a global, um, almost a global race for ideas to, you know, was in a way captured by that idea that tall is exciting. But the truth is in our practice, an enormous number of our buildings are mass timber, but, you know, one, two, three, four stories. Um, you know, and ranging as, as Natalie said, from you know public libraries and art galleries and gymnasiums and public swimming pools and and um, you know small resorts and and um, and residential buildings, small residential, smaller residential buildings. In North America, we don't build a lot of single-family homes in in mass timber. Um, we do some, and, and they do tend to be higher end, and that's really because our culture in North America around light wood frame construction what we call light wood frame, which is really the dominant construction type for smaller buildings here, um, is extremely cost effective and it's it's challenging for mass timber to be competing against light wood frame um, where light foot wood frame is allowed. But light wood frame isn't allowed on bigger buildings. And so that again is where mass timber starts to become really cost competitive. And light wood frame isn't effective for public buildings as much. And so that's also where it becomes really effective. So the perception's changing, uh, at least from what I can tell, and also I think the technology's changing in terms of like how many suppliers we can find for this uh, for for mass timber. And I remember working as a uh, landscape architect in Calgary on a bunch of projects, and at that time, like I don't know, even ten years ago, it wasn't so easy to find uh, this kind of timber. There was a couple suppliers in BC, uh, British Columbia, that were supplying it, and a couple on on the East Coast as well, but I guess like other perceptions changing in the public also are, are client perceptions changing and are you finding the availability like uh, a little more options in the market? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're really lucky. There's been a huge change in the last five years around um, the supply chain. Um, so whereas for quite a long period of time for the last 15 years, really there was only two Canadian suppliers for all of North America. Now you have a host of new suppliers coming into the US. You have the Canadian suppliers actually opening up CLT plants in the United States. Um, 
and and groups like Katera, who, who again we have a, a partnership with, um, have built the largest cross-laminated timber plant in the world um, in Washington State. And so now with that level of material production, um, the issue isn't really the supply chain issue. Now it becomes a demand chain issue, and and that demand chain comes from a couple different places. One is consumer education, letting people know that there's an alternative way to build and an alternative home for them to live in and, and all the benefits that come along with that, um, especially around wellness and obviously climate. Um, but also, you know, um, also demonstrating examples of it. So, you know, we're huge um, fans and supporters of anybody that's diving into this industry and um, the architects are choosing to work in the material. And the best part is that that is just a, a hugely uphill, you know, spike in in popularity right now around mass timber and not just in north america and so you know we really expect that the consumers increasingly are going to demand these kinds of buildings and that'll be great i'm really enjoying the conversation so far and, and i i love the conversation about wellness and how timber can help us with uh, the way we feel in buildings and also how it's going to help us uh, solve the climate crisis a lot of these ideas came through, I think, in, in a competition that Michael was the chairman of the jury for. Uh, the competition was called City Above the City. Can you explain what that was and maybe some of the ideas that were inspiring which came out of that, Michael? Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a neat company, a large forestry company called Mapsa out of Finland that um, you know sort of was inspired by the idea of stimulating conversation around the world through competitions and through some pretty neat exercises to kind of see what wood could do, um, especially to, um, you know, some of the iconic buildings, what if they were built in wood? So they, they've been doing these sort of fun exercises and we've been involved in a few of them. And the City by the City competition was um, a competition for architects and students to to come up with ideas of how do we densify? How do we take a city like you know, Berlin and, and, and instead of just tearing buildings down and building new buildings, how do we add more density to existing buildings? And so the concept was really about the fact that mass timber has that unique quality of being both strong and light, um, you know, reasonably light, let's say it's not light. Um, and, and therefore it, it, you could add a floor or two to the tops of buildings without requiring all new foundations to support the weight of the building. And and you could do that in a in a in a way that's safe from a building code and fire safety point of view and structural point of view. And so the idea was to kind of stimulate that conversation. What does the future of the city look like if we don't keep tearing buildings down and building bigger ones? And the ideas that came through were amazing. I mean, uh, you know, uh, as with any competition, they were all over the map and they, you know, ranged from um, you know really simple ideas to really really. Uh, huge, complicated ideas that perhaps you know were stretching the the limits of imagination of structure. But um, but what it did was exactly what it should do, which is just broaden the conversation to say that this there are so many applications where this new material can be applied. This is an important one that can solve a really serious issue, especially in in cities like um, European cities where the infrastructure and the and the existing uh, building stock, um, you know, is good, but perhaps needs to add density to it. Um, you know, I think in North America, 
sadly, we're still in a in a time where our building culture is one of tearing things down and rebuilding. Um, I think Europe has a unique opportunity to show us the way that preserving and building, in addition, like the like the competition did, um, you know, is a better path forward where we where we retain structures and and uh, you know and and all of the embodied you know environmental impact of those structures. One of the projects where I think uh, some of these principles were exhibited really well was Sidewalk Labs, uh, Quayside in Toronto. You were part of that project, right? Yes, we were. Yeah. We, we presented it uh, with Thomas Heatherwick at, at one of our conferences uh, last year, I believe. And, and we also had the other side of that argument um, uh, of the project about data security and um, transparency on the project. So we've dealt with this issue before. And, you know, I, I personally was so excited about this project. You know, I know the guys at Sidewalk Labs that were running it. I, I know Dan Doktoroff. And I thought, you know, some of the initial principles I thought were interesting. And like, you know, we had never really approached city building uh, like this before. And, and I was particularly excited about, you know, the way they talked about sustainability, the way they talked about you know, using better building materials. Um, I liked having a kind of network city. There was lots of thorny questions about the data ownership and stuff like that. And I did like the way, like the innovative way that they were thinking about financing it. But of course there's lots of questions that came up, which eventually killed the project um, recently. So I think that's pretty well documented, but tell us about like your participation in the project. Did you learn something Are any day ideas that you uh, pitched to them or that you're working on? Are they moving forward? Are you going to use them somewhere else? Uh, what's going on there? Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, like you mentioned, there are so many compelling kind of aspects of the approach um, that Sidewalk Labs took and, you know, is massively ambitious um, endeavor. I think it, um, in that ambition, asks some questions, you know, that we as a kind of in the industry and as well as kind of within our communities, um, you know, we we need to be talking about right now. And, and our uh, involvement was kind of uh, had two phases. The first was really about hey, look, there's a massive opportunity to create a, a timber uh, neighborhood at scale um, and thinking about that as part of the kit of parts. And so the question of how do you create a sustainable building stock um, with repeatable parts, but really allowing for kind of diversity of expression, diversity of different points of view from a design perspective. So from the beginning, we, we were part of the uh, team and really led the um, kind of development of the mass timber kit of parts. And, and then that was then tested um, by uh, kind of architects around the world to say, how could this kind of, you know, recipe book or kind of um, this different um, array of components really come together in a variety of ways to create diversity of experience. And, you know, one of, for us, one of the really compelling ways that um, of kind of the themes of the, of the kind of project and the effort was that it expanded well beyond one building. Um, there, the kind of network of, um, of kind of public spaces, um, the idea of multi-generational living, the idea of different uses kind of being built together and thinking about how um, kind of overlapping those de-siloing the kind of uses um, could kind of fit within one neighborhood. <coughs> so our first effort was really about um, kind of working with the Sidewalk Labs team and the, the greater project team to develop that kind of kid of parts playbook. Um, and, um, and, you know, asking the questions, not only about the mass timber part of, um, part of, part of that kit, 
but also the other components of wall panels. How could we think about um, a floor plate that could kind of evolve and change over time? There's a uh, kind of a couple that has a child, but then a, kind of a, a, an older family member moves in. How can that um, kind of residential unit really um, kind of grow and change along with um, the way that we kind of live and, and um, the way our families are structured changing? Um, so that kind of was our, our first um, endeavor. And then the second was um, working with sidewalk labs on um, really proving out a prototype of a 35 story tower from a code and so building code technical and also kind of constructability. So it's a kind of it was an opportunity to get a lot more detail on certain aspects of what made that timber tower unique to traditional construction methods. And so that was a, you know, working um, within the parameters of building code, how to um, uh, kind of work with the local government and find kind of solutions to uh, address that uh, the kind of opportunity and challenge. And so the two, the kind of the two uh, roles that we played offered different opportunities to kind of engage in that conversation. And I think beyond um, just ourselves, I think one of the really compelling kind of aspects of that project is how widely shared the process, the kind of takeaways that Sidewalk Labs um, kind of released to the, to the general public. And, you know, we're big believers in sharing ideas and um, building on those ideas together. And that's actually a really good thing. Um, sometimes there can be a sentiment in design that it's kind of, that was unique. Now we'll have to do something totally different. But with mass timber and this kind of evolving industry, there is this real kind of cultural um, kind of approach to sharing ideas and celebrating that. Um, yeah, I think you, you hit you hit a lot of the points that I was excited about of the project. And I, I, you know, it's a really interesting approach from sidewalk labs that they took and in, in that, like, I think like as urbanists, um, which is what we would consider ourselves here at Recite, I was super excited uh, that like, they were approaching like lots of different industries and saying, you know, we want to build a, a city in the way that you imagine cities. So for you guys, it was mass timber construction uh, at scale, like for at neighborhood scale for technologists. It was like the, the, you know, fully networked city for, um, people interested in sustainable energy or renewable energy, you know, there's initiatives for them. So I, you know, I really like, really appreciated this super ambitious approach. I think that, that they probably, um, well, in knowing uh, who was running the project, they, they underestimated the fact that, you know, not everyone was excited about change as, as, as they were. So I think that was one of the maybe hiccups that they didn't realize would come that they needed to deal with communication with public uh, in a better way the data data side of the project so kind of disappointing that that it, it failed but uh i think like you said like lots of things can can come out of that and and now i think people are talking about uh, timber scaled neighborhoods and, and, and i think that's a good thing so knowing that we're sort of running short on time i want to maybe jump to the last segment um there's been some interest uh, in in uh, gender diversity in in architecture and i appreciate this conversation because I hear um, two really sensible people talking about design and sustainability, but from different perspectives. And Natalie, like, can you illustrate some time in your work um, uh, where you think that like a purely female point of view has added a certain sensibility to your, to your design process or to the projects that you're working on? Yeah, I think maybe I'll I'll tackle that from kind of maybe like you like you said the kind of kind of um, way that Michael and I have developed to work is really um, an aspect of not only that we're kind of male female certainly but we have a different perspective um, for a lot of different reasons but we deeply respect one another and um, 
you know, kind of welcome and encourage debate and different perspectives to kind of challenge each other. Um, you know, that takes shape in lots of different forms um, throughout our kind of almost 15 years now working together. Um, and, uh, you know, a part of that is, is the kind of different gender, but I think it's also just um, kind of different points of view. And within our practice, um, we're, we're deeply process oriented. And uh, within our team, also kind of balance of, of genders is a, has always been a really important part of our kind of office structure. I think what we've observed is it can create a really um, kind of a, an environment that nurtures collaboration um, with that balance and, uh, and thinking about beyond kind of our project teams, um, you know, it's in fact the construction industry as a whole is very male dominated as are um, when we look at kind of larger kind of clients kind of leadership coming to us there's still quite a skew in terms of um, the kind of voices of, of kind of the male perspective um, and kind of in the microcosm of our office just observing that, that how valuable that balance is um, is something that we kind of just continue to um, you know invest in and also seek to expand so going beyond just kind of male female all different types of diversity of voices. Um, you know, architecture is going through this really exciting period of shifting from that kind of master vision kind of concept to a really a much more kind of um, collaborative process-oriented approach, which doesn't mean, doesn't mean compromise. It actually means um, taking advantage of different perspectives to build on them, where, you know, that's the kind of idea of like two minds together can equal five if we're building on that. And I think we invest in that kind of concept really deeply. and certainly kind of uh, appreciate that Michael and I have different um, kind of per perspective life experiences and part of that is gender. Yeah, there's something that, you know, from the inception of our firm, we've always been 50-50 or from time to time more women than men. Um, and there's something really wrong with our industry that that's notable, but, it, but we do notice it for sure. Um, you know, that shouldn't be the norm. That shouldn't be a special thing, but how do you build for society if you don't represent the voices of society as the way we see it and that's not spoke to it's not just about you know different perspectives of the sexes but different perspectives of age different perspectives of uh, race of, of sexual orientation the full diversity of issues that we deal in society should be um, issues we're both addressing through design but should come from a process and a collaboration of people that actually represent that diversity of views. And so we constantly want to increase diversity, um, but but in a weird way, um, this balance we have between men and women in the firm, which you know is strangely unique, is also just what should be the case in the entire industry. And and we know that it's part of our success that we care about this balance and diversity in our practice. Um, but it is strange that it's something that, that we do recognize we're quite unique in the industry for. Yeah, I think any of us who sat at a, at a table with real estate developers or um, clients or municipalities or planning commissions, they're, they're, we know that the testosterone level needs to be lowered a bit. Um, I always felt really strange at, at these tables that were like dominated by men, and I always worked for a woman-owned firm before I left to do a recite. And so I always felt really strange for the owner of our firm who had to sit at these tables. So I, I really appreciate this level of discussion. And I think it is remarkable that, that what, you know, what you're doing with the gender balance firm or, or how you're approaching projects 
um, it, I, I feel a very similar way that this shouldn't be remarkable, but but it is, and I think you should you know you should be proud of that. Um, I think it's it's one of the ways in which um, we can start to build rings, uh, and and I think this is where I think architects have the responsibility to grow the rings, as as you discussed, um, that can help kind of let's say give us a better process. Um, and protect, uh, let's say, the diversity of the city. I'm maybe stretching the metaphor a bit, but I think it helps um, by having this diversity of views uh, uh, for projects and, and particularly for architecture. And any last points on, on this or anything else that we missed today? You know, one of the things that we also feel is important is that um, is to constantly check in on ourselves what we're doing well and what we're not doing well and really own the concept that we can improve there are areas around this issue of diversity that we're working on improving and one of them um, that we feel is really important as canadians and in our part of canada is to really develop a stronger connection to our first nations people our aboriginal community and um and see representation from that community um into our process and our work in a much better way. And it's an area of, um, you know, decolonization in, the, in our practice. That's something that's become really increasingly important and it's something that truthfully we neglected for too long. And so, you know, we, we see all these areas for improvement and we try to share the idea that we're getting certain things right, but we've definitely got a ways to go as a practice to keep getting better. And, it, and hopefully everybody else sees that within their own practice. Yeah, agreed. And I think like this gets to, to the point of uh, all of us having the responsibility to grow the rings and, and um, create a more inclusive environment, be more open, be more friendly. So I really appreciate this conversation, both of you. Natalie, thank you so much. Uh, Michael, we really appreciate talking to both of you and, and learning more about your practice, your your expertise, and, and particularly, I enjoy the conversation about the sensibility in which you bring to the design process. So thanks so much. Thank, thanks so much for having us. Yeah. It's really fun to chat with you. It's a great conversation. Thanks a lot. Okay. Okay. Talk to right, you. Cheers. Have a, great, have a great day. And thanks to the audience for listening. What we can draw from this conversation as Martin said, is that we all hold responsibility for our environment, for our communities, and for each other. They are the factors that build rings of support and inclusivity into our cities. Another takeaway is that sustainability is a deeply complex issue, but it is not unsolvable. Just as we've begun to care more about the sources of our food and our clothing, we should apply the same mindfulness to how we source the materials that build our spaces and our communities. Natalie and Michael's passion is evident and inspiring. We hope you've been energized by these changemakers and their vision of a healthier, greener, and more equitable world. MGA's leadership and commitment to the use of natural, renewable materials can set an example for city makers working to provide a brighter future for generations to come. So thank you, Michael and Natalie. It was a pleasure to have you. And thank you to all of you who've tuned in. We've got another one for you in two weeks. This episode was directed by Elizabeth Mills and produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, with the support of Martin Berry and Radka Andrzejczkova. It was recorded in the Recite office in Prague and edited by Little Big Studio.